Today is the 26th of July, 2014, and this is episode 130. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is a new field of study. Consult your local futurist, lawyer, and investment advisor before making any decisions whatsoever for yourself. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine, and today we're all over the place. Recently, I spoke with Mark Hochstein, editor-in-chief over at American Banker. We talked their upcoming conference and the proposed New York regulations, their analogs, upsides, and some possible equal and opposite reactions. Then, I caught up with Rob Benigali, CEO of Glyph, for what's become our twice-yearly sit-down. We talked life as a startup, the rise and fall of the Apple Bitcoin ban, and the next generation of Glyph, an encrypted messaging app with Bitcoin integration built right in. But first, as Bitcoin becomes more normal, more normal things kind of just have to happen. Recently, I spoke with the guys over at Bitwage, a new startup aimed at making it easy to get paid in Bitcoin. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by John and JC, the founders over at Bitwage. Hey guys, how you doing? Good. Thanks for having us. Yeah, doing well. Thank you. Tell me about Bitwage. We're starting to get near hiring people, and we've hired people in the past, and that's been kind of a difficult thing for us. Your service is kind of interesting. So we do uh, Bitcoin payroll. So our, our, our goal is to make it easy for you to pay your employees in Bitcoin and in general just do payroll easier than it has been able to do before. Right now, we are, we're about to come out with our first release, our alpha release, sort of designed for, for startups in mind. Um, we made the process just so an employer can easily get all the preferences of all their employees, click a, click a button to, to do the payments for all of them, and we figured out all the rest for you guys. We're going to be developing this platform to get more and more complicated. At first, we are just working on a 1099 basis, working with workers who are doing 1099s, or if you're working with W-2 employees, you would want to do your payroll tax calculations somewhere else before using us, but we're, we're planning on implementing uh, more features come year-end. So tell me about the type of user that would, that would find your service to be useful. Right now, we're getting a lot of interest from um, Bitcoin startups, for one. And also, traditional companies that want to pay workers inter- internationally. A lot of times, um, you know, there's a demand for developers, but also other types of jobs. And the people are located in other countries, like London or uh, Argentina or uh, Hong Kong. And the challenge is paying them easily. And so, you know, with Bitcoin, now they're exploring paying workers through Bitcoin. So our platform is, is basically going to make that easier so that you don't have to send, you know, send like PGP encrypted emails or something with your wallets. You don't have to do, um, I guess, other challenges related to doing that process. On this international worker front, right now we're enabling you know, the, the payments of Bitcoins to your international workers, but we're actually right now working on you know, building, building the, the relationships that will pay us um, in U.S. dollars or Bitcoins or pay us in their fiat currency in Bitcoins. And they want to pay their international employees and we'll send it on the other side, either as Bitcoins or their fiat currency. So, you know, right now there is a, sort of a, a lot of headache caused to, to business owners who are 
paying international workers, um, especially on the in the U.S. And you know they have to they have to go through several loops, um, sending money through the the banking system, which means that it has to go through several different banks, which each take their own cut. And then at the end, they have to convert that into the uh, employees' fiat currency. And so a lot of money gets taken out in the process. We talked with like a Bolivian company a while back, and they said that through this process, when they're paying an international worker, the payment uh, is reduced by 30%. And so what we're sort of planning on doing is we're going to use the Bitcoin technology as sort of the method by which we convert fiat currency of the employer into Bitcoin, send that out to some exchange on the other side, turn that into a fiat currency, and so on the other side, the worker can pick it up, thereby sort of exposing a new class of people, a new audience to Bitcoins um, without them even really knowing too much about it or how to use it. Let's say right now I'm a Bitcoin company and I want to legally pay somebody payroll. That's the primary service that you're providing, right? It's not I'm somebody who is in the conventional sector and is dealing with U.S. dollars normally, but I would like to convert some of that into Bitcoin and pay it to my employees because they want to take a percentage. So it sounds like you have a lot of use cases that you're looking at expanding into. The core one that you're offering right now, as you said, is just the 1099 service. So that is basically anybody who has a contractor or anybody who is paid as a contractor, uh, they effectively can use your service, right? Yes, exactly. So do you work with the employer or the employee? We work with the employer. Employer comes in, they create an account, and then they can add employees. And then the employees, you know, would get an uh, email to get into the, the, the service. But as an employee, you know, you can have multiple employers, especially if you're a contractor. And as an employer, you know, obviously you can have multiple employees. If you want to do a payroll, you would add in the employees for that payroll. And then you, you put in the amount and then uh, we already know their wallet because they'll put it in. And then you just click send and then you send us on the back on the back side. Um, so right now, I think it's going to be wire. Although it may also it may also be able to do ACH for um, for um, and that you would send it I guess via um, via one of those two methods to us to our bank, and then we would send it all out the Bitcoin as as wanted by the employees and employer. So what um, stage is Bidwage at at this point? It sounds like you guys are fairly early in the process. Are you hiring? Are you looking for capital? Yeah, so we're ready for the launch in around twenty days, but we have. Uh, we have around, I guess, uh, three, four, five employees, but um, three of them are full-time. And then we have some people helping, um, I guess, more part-time. And, and yeah, as far as funding, we are currently self-funded. But we're seeking around later in the year, especially to going from this 1099 service towards the, I guess, what you call W-2 or tax calculation withholding service. And also, um, in terms of how our, our early stage product that's coming out on the on the twenty first, uh, initially what we'll be offering is you know you uh, send us an amount in bitcoins or dollars, and we send bitcoins out to uh, the ten ninety nine employees. But uh, very very shortly afterwards, um, I think within within weeks, we will be able to offer like the accepting of bitcoins and then the sending out of bitcoins and U S dollars based off of that. Well, very cool, guys. So if somebody wants to learn more or wants to get involved, where should they go? Our website, bitwage.co. They can email us, info at, at bitwage.co or beta at bitwage.co. The United States Treasury Department presents 
The Adventures of Superman. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Mark Hochstein, Editor-in-Chief over at American Banker. Mark, how are you? Doing good, Adam. We've seen some interesting news come out of New York recently, and I've been talking with a couple of people about it, and I kind of wanted to get your perspective because you have a, an interesting viewpoint here. We've seen the first versions of the bit license proposal, and from my perspective, it seems pretty draconian. I'm curious for your kind of initial reaction. We haven't had much time to process this, so maybe you don't have too much yet, but what do you think about this generally? I was a little surprised by some of it as well. I haven't uh, had as much time as I would like to study the proposal, and I'm going to be doing that in the next couple of days. You know, one thing I, I do think is important to keep keep in mind is that it is a proposal at this point. The Department of Financial Services is soliciting public feedback. Ben Lasky actually went on Reddit, of all places, to, to sort of put the proposal out there and ask for feedback from the cryptocurrency community. Now, that doesn't guarantee that, that it's going to get revised, but it's not set in stone just yet. So that's one important point. One optimistic reading of it from the perspective of the cryptocurrency community is that perhaps he's throwing all these things out there, not all of which he might necessarily expect to be in the finalized version. If he can point to really you know negative feedback and that gives that gives a regulator perhaps a little bit more cover to say, you know, we you know our public uh, input indicated that this would be a counterproductive measure, so you know we've modified this part of the proposal. That's that's a possibility. Now I do know that uh, that some people are upset that it's they I think there's only a 45 day comment period, something along those lines. The records of all parties to a transaction, I, the that, I mean that's what I what I keep reading is a, is a real issue. You know. Both parties to every transaction, and particularly that's going to cover apparently wallet providers, right? Right. It's very, very broad. You know, I mean, the best analogy that I can apply is this is like looking at every website on the internet in the early 90s as if every website is a business, right? From the perspective yeah. of an outside regulator, it actually kind of looks like that because they have vendors, which are, you know, bandwidth providers. They have infrastructure, servers. They have customers, users. But, of course, they don't really operate like that. A user isn't really a customer in the same sense. But, of course, we actually have a solution for that, too. You could be a nonprofit business. So kind of what I see yeah. this as is this is like uh, the New York regulator has said uh, all websites are businesses and all businesses must have a New York business uh, license and permission if they're going to operate in New York. And so, again, the downside about that, of course, is that not all websites really are businesses. And that's kind of what I see here is that not all tokens are money. And yet the standards of money and the behaviors of money and the, the, the regulation of money are basically being applied to them because we just have this incredibly broad and general view that's frankly wrong about a lot of things. I have always thought that it might have been better if instead of calling it Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto had called his invention Disk Ledger, which unfortunately is not as catchy, but uh, I guess it gets a uh, gets across the concept of it a little, uh, a little bit more accurate. You think about a company like Blockchain, which doesn't handle fiat at all. I mean, they just basically store your Bitcoins for you, I don't, they don't even. That's probably not even an accurate way of saying it. It's just, it's just pure. They just purely operate on Bitcoin. My understanding is that they would be subject to this if, if they have customers in New York. You know, blockchain is one of the places where you can set up a wallet without giving your name or address or, or you know, other personally identifying details, which 
I think is, 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 is fine. Obviously, anonymity is a dirty word in the, in the world that I, that, that I live in right now. But, um, and, and that would be overreach, I think, to, it's one thing to say, like, you know, in the FinCEN guidelines, if you're exchanging fiat currency for digital currency, you know, that, that there's some KYC or AML requirements. I think we've all sort of adjusted to that over the last year and a half, that that's the reality. You know, saying that the exchanger has to keep records in case they get subpoenaed by law enforcement, you know, that's, that's one thing. But, you know, to say that a wallet provider is subject to these things, if, if they're only storing the digital tokens for you, that's a bit of a stretch of, of what we're used to. Theoretically, blockchain, if they were concerned about this, about being subject, and I, I don't mean to single them out, I just think of them because they're a successful company in the space that hasn't had any issues to date. Putting on my wide-eyed uh, libertarian uh, stance, um, this really, really seems that it is trying to raise the barrier to entry in New York, and essentially that this is the status quo, as it were, insulating itself from competition and essentially creating a firewall around New York where if you have the money and the permission and the connections in order to get that license, you probably could make a good business actually enabling other people who don't want to jump through all those hoops. The LTB coin rewards program that we do, this is basically a non-monetary mm-hmm. thing. We give it to people for free based yep. on reading articles and listening to the show and things like that. So if the choice is for us, do we have to pay even $10,000 in compliance and licensing costs, or do we just simply block New York IP addresses from using that portion of our offering, then it seems pretty obvious to me which one we're going to pick. Yeah. So is there more to this than just let's own it all, let's you know create a ring wall and try to just control New York since it's hard to control this thing in other areas? We can't read regulators' minds. I mean, I think a lot of regulation inside and outside the financial sector does certainly have that effect, quite possibly in many cases that intent. And it certainly would have that, that effect in this case. You know, I mean, and that came up during the hearings, too. You know, you, there was a lot of discussion among some of the more sophisticated panelists that lost. They were talking about, well, why can't you at least have an on-ramp? So, you know, a company that can't really afford some of that compliance as a startup cost, as they acquire customers and they cross some threshold, maybe subject them then to licensing requirements, but don't just, you know, nip them in the butt. I mean, it would certainly have that effect, whether, you know, whether or not that, that's the intent. You know, that's a good point you made about IP addresses, too. You know, I was talking about blockchain. Blockchain could, in theory, if they didn't want to be subject to the long arm of New York, they could just block any IP addresses that are in New York. Suppose you could get around that through, through a customer, you could get around that uh, using a VPN or maybe Tor. Can you tell if someone's using either Tor or a VPN? No, essentially, well, it sort of doesn't matter from my perspective. What we can do is we can make a best effort and do everything in our power yep. to actually stop this. And it will stop the majority of users from using these features yeah. because most users aren't going to jump through those hoops for, for something like what we're talking yeah. about. That's the, the path of least resistance as I see it. You know, I, I understand the urge to look at these things like money, but it really does come back to that all websites are not businesses and all tokens are not money. The other thing is that, you know, there's money and then there's money. When, when you're handling small amounts, it's not the same thing as a bank. It's one thing if you're holding money for someone and you're holding their life savings and that's all they have. That's money in the bank. It's one thing to put, subject that kind of institution to a high standard. But if someone's A to B, and uh, I think careful Bitcoin users will hold only small amounts with the third party anyway. 
you know, best practice, uh, as I've learned from listening to your show and from other sources, is put your quote-unquote savings, if you will, in, into a paper wallet or some form of cold storage. You know, a wallet, a service like Coinbase or blockchain, you know, you, you wouldn't put all your Bitcoins in there anymore than you'd walk around the street with your life savings, right? Right. So now, I do, you know, requiring 100% reserve, I know there's been some negative reaction to that in some corners. I actually don't even think it's such a bad, I mean, that's standard for money transmitters in general. I, you know, I think if you're, if you tell your customers, you know, you're holding 10 Bitcoins on their behalf, you should actually have 10 Bitcoins that you're, that are re- you're ready to produce whenever they want to take them out. That part doesn't isn't as galling. I think a lot of the record keeping requirements that have promoted a lot of the negative reaction, you know, those those are a little bit more problematic because again, I have to read the the document itself. But you know, I'm looking at this post that Patrick Merck put up. Patrick Merck from the Bitcoin Foundation, I should clarify, uh, put up on GitHub, where he's saying, you know, it requires names, account numbers, and physical addresses for both parties to every transaction. Infeasible, in fact, is to any wallet, wallet provider. Further impractical for escrow and multi, or multi-party payments, and you know he's got a fair point about the practicality. And then there's also just the privacy question, and I, and I think this this comes back to this whole theme of worlds colliding, right? Because we have a financial services industry where anonymity is a big word, where um, you know anti-money laundering laws and suspicious activity reports have been the norm for close to a generation. It's sort of taken as a given that that you that you live in a fishbowl, at least as, as far as it relates to your financial life. On the other hand, you know, in the Bitcoin world, where we know that Bitcoin is not fully perfectly anonymous, but that was one of the early the early selling points was the greater degree of privacy that it gave you. On the one hand, you have dark wallet and these uh, and zero coin and these efforts to to, to really make digital money a lot more like cash in the, in the, in the idea that it's untraceable. And that really is counter to the, uh, increasingly to just the expectations that regulators have with financial institutions in general. I think that Lossky, to his credit, I think seems during the bit license hearings to have a, a, a somewhat more nuanced take than some other regulators would have. I interviewed him and I brought up the issue of privacy and he admitted that it would be nice for people who are shopping on Amazon or whatever to have a way to make purchases online without exposing their information in such a way that they're going to get spammed by marketers, for example. The phrase that he used in that interview that always, I always come back to, as long as someone knows who you are, then it's okay. Well, that's an interesting so, point. Let me ask you this. You know, you talked about the dark market side and, you know, the areas yeah. that are pushing on anonymity. It seems to me that the incentives being set up by a system like this, because as Patrick Merck said, uh, you know, as you as you mentioned, it's kind of infeasible. The, the amount of compliance and reporting that they're asking for, given the way the system works, is kind of incompatible. And so Bitcoin and all of these cryptocurrencies are open source. Doesn't it make sense if this is going to be the rule in a decent sized market like New York? that we're simply going to start seeing cryptocurrencies that do comply with these, that are like these hybrid things that uh, that have uh, the desirable features but don't have the features that make it difficult to work with? It's definitely possible. It's So in other words, like altcoins or uh, corporate coins, 
Right. Well, like just that. like compliance coins is really what I'm thinking is coins where, I mean, <laughs> go, seriously, go down the list of the compliance of, of, of what they actually want you to do in order to qualify for this. You just associate names and social security numbers on the back end so that somebody knows, but it's not public. I mean, like it could totally be done. And now it really feels like this is a big enough incentive if this goes through and isn't changed substantially. Because, I mean, that's the other thing, of course, is that you're probably right. It is going to be walked back a good amount on, uh, on, you know, as far as these proposed bit licenses are concerned by the time they actually hit law, but they still are going to be meaningful and they will still be. And so by starting at this extreme point, you give yourself a lot of room to kind of, you know, negotiate, quote unquote, and walk back to a middle point. Yeah. That's still what you wanted anyways. Yeah, yeah. One could get comfortable as a civil libertarian with the idea of, as lo- quote unquote, as long as someone knows who you are in the sense that, but you have to trust that someone to respect your confidentiality, except when it's really, really necessary that they that that they compromise. But right now, you know, all it really would take if a regular or law enforcement wanted to know, you know, who is the customer, who is the person that controls this address. A subpoena is not as good as a warrant, right? By the way, when I say warrant, I would, you know, it, w- it would be nicer to have. To it for it to be a warrant, and it would be even nicer if it be a warrant signed in an actual, like a real court, not the FISA court, right. you know, not some shadowy Kafkaesque tribunal. But we have the third party doctrine in this country. The third party doctrine is the, the legal concept that says that records that uh, a, a person stores with a third party have no reasonable expectation of privacy. And I believe that actually originated in the banking case back in like the late 70s or early 80s. You know, that's why we have money, this anti-money laundering regime uh, to start with. You know, and that's why, you know, banks are expected to file suspicious activity reports on their customers uh, without telling their customers, obviously. Suspicious is a, is a, uh, shall we say, subjective uh, standard, right? (laughs) Yeah, Um, I was having a conversation uh, with a former regulator a couple of weeks ago. I asked him, what's the penalty for filing too many SARs? And he just kind of laughed. He said, there is none. Um, and there is this practice known as defensive filing. Better to be safe than sorry and file a SAR than have someone come back to you later on and say, why didn't you file a SAR when this happened? Right. And the SAR is a um, suspicious activity report. Yes, suspicious activity report. And these all sit in a, um, in a database somewhere in Washington. I don't even know if they ever get purged. That's a, it's actually a good question. I should look into it. But they, you know, so you know, they could be sitting there for a long time with you know very personal details about a bank customer's transactions. Look, there 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 are bad people in this world, and there are there are dangerous people in this world. I, I don't deny that. You know, aside from just the privacy question, um, you know, it's 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 a cost. It's a co- it's 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 a it's a big cost for these financial institutions. They have to keep the records. They have to do all this due diligence. We all pay for that indirectly, one way or the other. It's going to have to be worked out one way or the other. But increasingly, the expectation of financial institutions is to kind of be even more and more like cops. And I think that you know, Operation Chokepoint is a good example of that. Operation Chokepoint. An, an important thing is to distinguish between what it's trying to do and the effect it's had. They talk about it as a way to stop fraudsters. You know, some of these businesses are, and there are fraudulent businesses out there. A lot of them take advantage of consumers. So, you know, fair enough, let's try to stop fraud. But it's sort of been associated with this document from the FDIC from 2011 that was included in the 
Operation Showpoint PowerPoint presentation that the DOJ put together. So when you hear about you know pornography being on this list of risky industries and uh, lifetime guarantees and and all those things, that's all from that. That list is actually predates Operation Showpoint by several years, and it's it's from this uh, memo that the FDIC put out in 2011. It did, it did not say don't do business with these industries, but it did say that these are high risk and quote unquote high risk industries that you have to be extra careful about doing business with. I think that list being reproduced in in the context of Operation Chokepoint has really made a lot of banks decide, you know what, I don't even want to have anything to do with some of these some of these industries. So I think that's why you see these reports about, you know, people working in the adult entertainment industry who have their personal accounts yanked from them. You know, not just business accounts, but their personal accounts. You've uh, heard about some of these stories. Um, reported, you know, someone said hundreds. I th- I don't know that that's true, but I think there were there were there were, there were a handful of people who worked in that industry who, uh, around the same time, reported that their their bank accounts were being closed unilaterally by their banks with no explanation or with conflicting explanations based on who they talk to. It's widely been read as a resulting from op- Operation Chokepoint. Again, I don't think anyone is actually telling a bank you can't do. You have to close these accounts. No one's formally saying that, but I, you know, I think that some of these banks are being just, you know, deciding that anything that has any taint of risk, uh, or if it's if they think that that account is going to require extra work just to monitor the risk, they're to say it's it's not worth the risk return profile. If that if that makes any sense, right? No, that definitely makes sense. And again, that's really what it is: is that while this is small, there just isn't a reason since the compliance, is, the burden is so much. And this is true not just in Bitcoin; it's true of really anything, any anything that isn't actually you know a large portion of the business, but puts the whole business at risk, is not necessarily a good decision. But it's it's just unfortunate that that's kind of the the environment that that we exist in right now. So. On uh, yes. Tuesday, the 29th, you actually are putting on, American bankers putting on a conference in New York um, called on, on Digital Currencies, talking about these exact issues. It's an interesting mix of people. You know, one of the speakers is going to be Lester Joseph, who is the head of AML compliance at Wells Fargo. And I was really excited that he, he agreed to speak. He's going to be on, the, on the, the requisite regulatory panel with some of the other uh, uh, people who were used to seeing at, at these shows. What type of a user would be going to um, to this particular conference? Anyone's welcome to to attend, uh, but it, 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 this is really aimed at our core audience, the people who read American Banker and Payment Source, who are curious about cryptocurrency, curious about about the new digital money. They are mystified by it. They want to know. They want to get a handle on it. This is our company's first event in this space. We set pretty modest goals for it. I think we're going to have about somewhere between 50 and 100 attendees, which is just to, just to kind of dip, you know, uh, dip our toe in the water and see what kind of a, you know, what kind of a demand there is. We got as, uh, at least as many people as we conservatively estimated we would get. And it's really to just explain it and explain why this stuff matters and how this could, over time, affect our business and what the opportunities are. Obviously, regulation looms very large over this, and you know, we had a, just a regular digital banking conference out in L.A. a few weeks ago, or maybe a little bit more than a month ago. I did a panel that was just uh, cryptocurrency there, and there were just a, a, a lot of people who 
worked at banks who said, you know, we'd like to bank some of these startups, but we're having a hard time getting our compliance people comfortable in it. And they really feel like there is increasingly a, a mandate uh, for them to kind of stick their nose into every transaction. They want to not only know your customer, but know your customer's customer. So I'm curious as to what the Wells Fargo guy's going to say uh, at the show, because I think we know that a few months ago they had this sort of town meeting of sort of the cryptocurrency community. I think they had one in California and one in New York where they just invited people from the industry to speak and they were just listening listening them was the way they made it sound. And they didn't commit one way or the other to whether they would really engage in this space. So the fact that he's showing up is interesting. And I'm really curious as to what he's going to say about what he learned. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm looking at the uh, lineup and I see Jeremy Allaire's doing the keynote. And I see Chris Larson giving a talk about uh, foreign exchange, the Internet Archive Federal Credit Union. So this looks like a combination of regulation. It looks like there's a lot of VC mixed in here, too. Although if you scroll down to the bottom, the finale, so to speak, um, Charlie Shrem uh, reached out, and I was very happy to have him uh, as, part, as part of the agenda as well. The title of his talk is going to be Bitcoin Pitfalls and How to Avoid Them. Charlie Shrem, I think, as you know, is um, uh, no longer <laughs> under house arrest. Yeah. He's, it's cool that he, um, you know, he's, he's you know, been doing some work as sort of a... Uh, business development consultant for Paza, which is a a payment processor. I think they're based out in India, but they're interested in in the, in the Bitcoin space, and so he's he's been able to do some work for them. So I'm, you know, he's been able to kind of you know rebuild even through through all all of the troubles he's had. And Doesn't I think seem it's like be, the kind of guy to stay down. No, not at all. But I think it's going to be good to have that voice in the mix as well. You know, one of the really early adopters and one of the earliest entrepreneurs. You know, someone who is a lot more beloved, I think, in, in that community than, say, Jeremy Allaire would be, to say nothing of the regulators. If somebody is interested in uh, picking up a ticket and attending the event, where where should they go? So if you go to AmericanBanker.com backslash conferences backslash digital currencies. So AmericanBanker.com backslash conferences backslash digital currencies, uh, that should take you to the sign-up page. Okay. Now, before we close out this interview... Mark, so we've been talking now, we haven't talked recently, but we have been talking for about a year. I'm curious, you know, what really stands out at you as the thing that is different now than when we first started talking about this a year ago? People take it a lot more seriously. I think that's a big thing. I went from being the crank around here who talks about Bitcoin and people would laugh and roll their eyes and, you know, make jokes and, you know, say, I'm not your resident anarchist or whatever. I wouldn't say that it's mainstream anymore, but uh, it's definitely taken a lot, ser- lot more seriously. You asked me a year ago if American Banker would be doing a, a cryptocurrency conference. I wouldn't have thought so. You know, I'm surprised that it's moved as fast as it has. And I'm surprised that it's um, gained some of the mainstream acceptance that it has. You know, even the way Ben Mosby, you know, uh, talks about it, he recognized uh, a lot of the merits of this technology. You know, so I think he understands that the are some things that digital currency is capable of that is not being provided right now by the status quo. Today's episode, in addition to our LTBC sponsors, is brought to you by CryptoKit. CryptoKit is a web wallet that installs right into your Chrome browser, so it's always there when you need it. Here are the headlines from its built-in news feed. 
on this, the 26th of July, 2014. New York's financial regulator Benjamin Losky maintains lead on Bitcoin. Ecuador bans Bitcoin, plans on digital money. Bitcoin price dips below $600, but poised for breakout. Celery launches consumer-friendly Bitcoin and Dogecoin buying service. Can Bitcoin be stable long-term? Bitcoin is the truth, says Rap Genius founder. Mt. Gox trustee will consider returning Bitcoin unconverted. All this and more in your own browser. Check it out at CryptoKit.com. K-R-Y-P-T-O-K-I-T.com. Today's high watermark at 66,000 LTBC is Prismicide, a Bitcoin hardware wallet and anti-PRISM platform. Basically, this is a low-cost, secure, personal touchscreen banking terminal you keep on your desk or in your pocket. It uses BIP32 wallets, supports multi-sig, transaction signing over USB or Bluetooth, and it appears all of its elements are open source. With this device, your Bitcoin private keys are stored in a removable smart card itself. And when you perform a transaction on your phone or other device that has a wallet on it, this allows you to keep your keys handy without exposing them to the most common attacks against online keys. They're currently running an Indiegogo right now with flexible funding. You can visit their website and learn more about it. And if you'd like to, it looks like you can pre-order one of the first run of these completed wallets with the appropriate cards for about $215 right now. But as with any crowdfunding, I'm sure they appreciate your support no matter what. So check it out at prismicide.com. P-R-I-S-M-I-C-I-D-E.com. So you're expecting the magic words, but it's not here. Stay tuned for that. Instead, let me tell you about our new referral program. Now that the forum promotion has ended where people are rewarded for having at least five posts, users are being classified into two categories on a weekly basis, active or inactive. Active users generate a minimum amount of points through their activities while logged in, like reading articles, making comments, submitting magic words. Once the person has this undisclosed but pretty modest minimum amount of activity per week, they're an active quote-unquote member um, and receive an equal portion of that week's active member pool of LTB coin that we reward to people like that. So here's where referrals comes in. There's another pool, the same size as the first, and it is not evenly distributed. When you log in at letstalkbitcoin.com or click your username in the upper left-hand corner of the main page, it'll take you to the dashboard. On the left, you'll see referrals, and there you'll find your special link. Anyone who visits the site via your link and joins will have you automatically set as their referrer. Referrers can also be manually set, just have your friend go to their account setting and enter your username. Each week, all active users share equally from the first pool. But the second pool, the more active members you've referred, the larger your share. So you can't control that your share of the first pool will diminish as the community grows, but if you help us grow with real contributing community members, you'll be rewarded as long as your efforts add value. So what does this mean? It means that if you've been helping us grow to this point, tell those people who you introduced to go enter you as their refer. If you were waiting for a good reason to involve your friends and associates, this is probably it. Today's silver sponsor was a very tight race, with Coinsource.com squeaking past Lauren Radcliffe art in the last minutes with 22,000 LTBC. From their mission statement, Coinsource is a project founded by diehard alternative currency lovers. The Coins, plural, source team gives the utmost passion and respect for all the hardworking individuals have done to improve cryptocurrency in general, end quote. Visitors at Coinsource.com will see a quick reference of upcoming coin launches, the latest available reviews. Right now it looks like SyncCoin, Viacoin, NavajoCoin, FimCrypto, and MammothCoin. I think I've heard of NavajoCoin before. There's also a premium level of membership, and it actually looks like they have their own coin too. 
It's called SourceCoin, mostly pre-mined, combination, proof-of-work, proof-of-stake, and used to buy that premium level of membership. Honestly, they're doing some pretty cool stuff over here. You can check it out at Coinsource.com. C-O-I-N-S-S-O-U-R-C-E.com. That's it. Back to the show. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Rob Benigali, founder and CEO over at Glyph, a secure encrypted messaging application available on the iOS devices, Android devices, and a couple other things now too, right? Hey, Rob, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you doing, Adam? So it's been a while since we've since we've caught up. I, you know, I think that we've done more interviews with you on the show than actually anybody else. This is our third, and we've done them just about every six months, right? Well, I think it's just because we're so old school, or because we're long in the tooth than any anything else. <laughs> so. Glyph is a secure messaging app that was That's one of the first ones to build in Bitcoin support, and then it didn't have Bitcoin support for a while. What happened? That's right. Yeah. Well, so it's right. So Glyph was the first to really uh, integrate with Coinbase and blockchain and combine the ability to use a web wallet with this ability, easy way to send Bitcoin, which is to avoid using wallet addresses directly and instead think about the person you're sending the Bitcoin to the amount and why uh, instead of uh, messing with the technical details. And so we kind of built this really awesome solution for that, uh, specifically on both Android and iPhone. And what happened was around Thanksgiving of last year, we got this phone call from Cupertino and uh, they basically asked for us to uh, please remove the ability to send Bitcoin in the app. So... So uh, it caused a fair amount of controversy, uh, actually, uh, because everybody was looking to see Bitcoin becoming more mainstream. And uh, obviously, Apple is an important uh, factor for a lot of people in their day-to-day use of computers. They use iPhones and iPads. And to not be able to use Bitcoin on the platform was a really big bummer for a lot of people. That really... that became a bigger story when we published a, a blog entry. Uh, we published a blog entry that outlined the current practices of Google Play and the App Store uh, and, and what they were allowing in. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, we published uh, um, our appeal letter uh, to Apple, which was unusual. No one else was willing to do that in the Bitcoin ecosystem. We think it actually ended up being quite effective in uh, helping changed Apple's mind. And that's kind of the exciting part um, was that very recently, I think about five, six weeks ago, uh, with the introduction of iOS 8, uh, or at least the uh, announcement of it at at WWDC, Apple not only added language to handle virtual currencies in their App Store rules, but uh, soon after that, we started seeing the very first submissions that included Bitcoin start uh, getting allowed through. Uh, and today, they, they, this podcast is airing, uh, Glyph is returning to the App Store with Bitcoin sending. You said that most people didn't want to publish their letters. And again, this is because Apple basically just kind of has control. And so even if it's not really against the rules to necessarily do stuff, you don't want to do things that make them mad because then they might not you know, let you use their service, right? <laughs> what they've said officially is in the, I think in the App Store review guidelines is they actually specifically say, um, you know, if you have a... Uh, rejection or something like that. The language they use is if you go running to the press, it won't help things, I think is what they say, something along those lines. And uh, we actually, we didn't go running to the press, but what we did do was just be very transparent and very positive about it. 
I think it was easy for a lot of folks to try to say that Apple was trying to compete against Bitcoin uh, to suggest that they were going to do their own payment solution and that Bitcoin was interfering with their strategy. And so they were trying to squash that, uh, which I was, you know, speculation uh, for sure. And I think that's clearly been disproven now. And I, I felt like it, it was really important to just be positive uh, to suggest instead of sort of pointing fingers at competition to raise awareness of the fact that Apple as a technology leader and as a technology giant, and also a you know a front runner in innovation in mobile, to be participatory with Bitcoin, to be an enabler of Bitcoin, and to help foster the creation of the um, of Bitcoin, um, particularly because uh, iOS is is such a mainstream device. It is the easy to use, non techy way to uh, use computers on the go. I'm really happy with the with the result. Usernames and Bitcoin are an idea that I didn't actually used to get that much. And then I started using it with uh, Glyph. And there have been a couple of other services that have popped up. And now we actually at Let's Talk Bitcoin, in order to do our uh, LTB coin rewards program, built kind of a system where users associate a particular Bitcoin address with their account. And then we can distribute counterparty blockchain type assets to just those usernames, and it's all handled on the back. And of course, our system is quite expensive because we're actually making the Bitcoin transactions, whereas you're using, when we talked about this before, really what your um, sending of Bitcoin is, is more like integration with different types of exchanges and core merchants. Is that right? Exactly. So it is important to make this experience really easy. And so far, operating your own wallet has been mostly, we feel like the domain of more advanced or expert users. Uh, hosting your own wallet is not the kind of thing that you're, you know, a newcomer who's not already a technology kind of professional is, is necessarily up to. And what we're seeing is a lot of these people going to Coinbase or going to blockchain and uh, using their web wallets because they don't want to protect anything more than their password. They don't want to handle their private keys or be responsible for their wallet. They just want to be able to access this stuff. So what Glyph did was integrate with those two services using their APIs. So basically, if you have an account on either one, you can really easily attach your wallet. And what that means is, is your, your kind of Glyph identity, who you are on Glyph, is just kind of Bitcoin enabled all of a sudden. So anyone else you're connected to who is also sort of Bitcoin enabled, you can easily handle transactions with and, and uh, complete tra these transactions. Yeah. So it sounds to me like the type of user that you're really talking about with this is one where you're looking for someone who wants to use it transactionally without having to maintain the infrastructure of their own wallet. So what type of user is this not for? Are there downsides to the approach that you've taken with this? Are there users who you think would just be better off with a full type of wallet? Yeah, certainly. I think we're still in a Bitcoiner phase in some respects in, this, uh, in the sense that I think the most active members of the Bitcoin ecosystem today are people who are technical, who enjoy cryptography and learning about cryptography who follow the announcements of the mining pools with regard to the 51% concern and, and pay attention to these types of things. Uh, for those people, I think it's, uh, a lot of them want to hold their private keys. They want to administer their own wallet. They want to take Bitcoin offline on their own. They don't want that being done, for example, by somebody else on their behalf. Even if, even if it's being said it's being done, they want to know. And for those kind of folks, I think that having your own wallet, operating it from your PC or even from an app that supports, you know, a local wallet is a better solution.
So Glyph is a chat application with this type of functionally enabled. I want to send you some Bitcoin. How does this work? Glyph is a secure secure chat application. It's pretty simple. Once you attach your wallet, you like I mentioned, you have a, a Bitcoin-enabled Glyph account. You just kind of go to a conversation with someone. So I could go to my conversation with you on Glyph, and then I'll just tap the attach coins button. And it's like you would attach a photo. And then you say the amount you want to send and hit send. It's that easy. And then you can go to the wallet view and see the transactions pending. So we have a, that status of the um, transactions shown. And then uh, once it's confirmed, you'll see confirmed. And that's as easy as it gets. So since we last spoke about the actual technology, you've rolled out, I guess, a desktop version. You showed this to me, I guess, uh, about two months ago, kind of an early preview version. And I haven't had too much of a chance to take a look at the one you sent me last night. Can you kind of tell us what, what types of features are we looking at that have been integrated or you know, what, what's different about the software base now than it was six months ago? Man, it is a way stronger platform. So like the back end, the things that make Glyph tick are just, I mean, we've really strengthened the technology so we can do a lot more cool stuff with the Glyph platform. That's not really something you'll see, but the, the thing you just mentioned, this desktop web app, you definitely saw a very early version of it two months ago, but the one that we're releasing today, so on the date of air, this podcast, uh, is a brand new desktop web application. Basically, hardly anyone has seen this thing before. Um, using your browser on any computer or your tablet, you can access this really killer interface for uh, connecting with other Glyph users, holding secure conversations, and we've introduced uh, group messaging, so secure group messaging. Um, something we got feedback about was that people who use Glyph professionally, so we have like lawyers and uh, even some human rights workers who use Glyph to communicate, uh, is that they're doing it throughout the day. And they're not just doing it from their phone, they're using Glyph from their computer. And so uh, previously, we only had this kind of little mobile web. It wasn't very awesome. But uh, this new desktop web application is just really cool. I think it, I think it also um, makes the use of Bitcoin, the attaching of your wallet, to the Bitcoin uh, platform, like more visual and easier to understand for a lot of people. Um, so that's pretty neat. Also, today we're releasing a major update to the Android app. So I've actually got a, um, a message from somebody uh, on the support glyph asking if, you know, the, the Android app was like, you know, really just kind of uh, being marginalized compared to the iPhone app. And, you know, what was the story there? And frankly, it's, it's, it is challenging as a startup, I think, to support so many different clients. Uh, it's very hard. But we have managed to update the Android app uh, with this release. So it is actually uh, basically at parity with the iPhone app. So really great functionality it has. Uh, you can set profile photos in it. You can have secure group conversations, create groups. And you can obviously send Bitcoin as you previously could. But now we've also added the QR code scanner the Android app as well. So really fully featured on iOS and Android. And then we've got this killer new desktop web application. So tell me about the uh, desktop application, because one of the things that I've found myself over the last six months, I guess, doing a lot of is participating in Skype group text chats. These are text chats that uh, are generally topic specific for a project or another, and they can be quite large. Um, and they've become kind of the uh, a primary way, it seems like, that a lot of the more innovative projects are communicating and, and organizing people. So I've, Skype isn't an ideal platform to do anything like that. Uh, <laughs> I'm curious, you know, is, is this something that you think could be used with the desktop app? Yeah, absolutely. So 
Skype replacement for Skype group messaging. Uh, it has some advantages over Skype. For example, like our, we have uh, really strong feelings about offering data privacy on Glyph. And part of that privacy aspect of our platform is that we allow anybody to delete a message they've sent with another user. And in group conversations, the admin can delete or clear the entire conversation and it removes the messages from the server and from all the other clients as well who are participating. These are permanently deleted. And so it allows for a really strong degree of privacy, particularly if you're having you know, business discussions. And this is not the kind of thing you get on Skype, unfortunately. You may be able to delete something locally so it doesn't show to you anymore, but you can't recall or otherwise kind of alter messaging on, on the other person's side. Is there a maximum size limit to the size of one of these uh, group text chats? Oh, we haven't hit it yet. Uh, I would be curious to find out if... if <laughs> so, so there might be a technical um, limit, but you actually have a, you, you've never scaled it that large. Yeah, we've never had a conversation that big yet. So what about uh, security? Can you talk a little bit about the encryption and how that works? Can the platform see, first off? And secondly, in the type of group environment, how exactly does that work? These are very foundational aspects of what Glyph is, is that we offer privacy and we offer data security. This is a really hot topic, and it's, um, it's good to elaborate a little bit on how this works. So first of all, um, what can Glyph see? The app encrypts everything between the users. Um, the server manages the private keys, so that's important to note. Uh, on the other hand, Glyph does offer uh, something similar to what LavaBit offered, which is the ability to turn off password reset. And when you've done that, your uh, communication and your personal data is encrypted using a key generated from your password. And so if you lose your password, we cannot recover your account uh, for you. You can't, I mean, uh, you could, there's no password reset capability. Uh, so that's important to note um, that it, that's a feature we call lockdown privacy. And we've had that for a while now. That works still in group messaging. The key is, is for each person in participating in the group to have lockdown enabled or to have turned off password reset. So long as that's the case, uh, no one other than you and your group members uh, and their passwords can read those messages. Now, we obviously don't read, just because you don't have lockdown enabled doesn't mean that we are viewing or have direct access in any way to looking at people's conversations. And as a policy, which we have written out in our privacy policy, we do not do that. So that's a really clear thing that we, we make clear. Uh, we don't have interest in that. Uh, and it's, it's just not, we, we, we wouldn't want that for ourselves. And so we don't operate uh, something that would do well, that. Also, following the lava bit example, I do have a question. Um, we live in kind of a weird world right now where rules are sort of odd. And sometimes you can get a letter from somebody that you're not legally allowed to tell anybody about. And so since the, the kind of lava bit, we can't talk about this thing happened. We've seen some companies that have this sort of privacy concern use what are called Oh gosh, it's a canary something. But basically the idea is is that you publish a piece of information that if you ever did receive something that would compromise the security, you would not be able to say anymore, basically. And so it's it's uh it's more like a disclosure by omission. So you're not technically breaking the rules. I mean, like do you guys have any types of policies like that in place or is this even a concern for you? Do you would you have access if somebody like the NSA wanted this information? Well, it's really not just about, you know, a security enforcement agency of some type. It's also about hackers, uh, because if a service has become compromised, it's important that the database itself protected. 
And so it's really not just about a subpoena here. It's about any third party who might gain access to the system. So that's just to outline that that's, that's why the security is in place. Um, the, the canary thing you mentioned, we, I've heard feedback on it and I've seen some services have done that. We we've considered it. We haven't done it yet. Really. I, mostly my, my reasoning and the reason is because if you screw that up and you don't tweet at the right time, uh, not because some, you know, you got an actual request or something along those lines, but uh, because either your system didn't automatically do what it's supposed to, or you dismissed that reminder or something, you could accidentally basically um, suggest that there's been an right. issue. And I, I can do it. Can and that's oh, I think that's probably more likely and dangerous right now for you know to falsely alarm our you know people who use Glyph. Uh, than to offer this. But I can say as Canary right now uh, is that we have not had any of those types of requests. That's really positive. Well, another use for these interviews then. <laughs> so on the desktop client, so we've got group chat now and you have the ability to use Bitcoin again. Glyph is essentially now probably the best way to use Bitcoin on iOS. Uh, if you use either Coinbase or blockchain, it's essentially like kind of like a Swiss army knife now because you can spend to QR now and you can send the, it's the easiest way to send back hmm. and forth. So I wanted to mention that and make sure that people realize that if you're trying to get somebody going on Bitcoin, uh, Glyph's an incredible way to, to do that for sure. That's really the thrust of this. I think it's just a more fun and easier to use, uh, app these days. I, I think in, I think when episode 47, when we last checked in, you know, we talked a little bit about the symbol based usernames that Glyph has. We still use this as a way to offer uh, pseudonymity to our users at a very base level. It's part of our privacy that's built into what we've, we've done here. But we've uh, also got a lot of feedback that it's kind of hard to always know who is who in Glyph. So we've made a lot of uh, attempts to um, make sure people are have an easy way to identify themselves, that they uh, have the option, a clear option to make a pseudonym or first name public so that it's easy for other people who are talking with them to see, oh, okay, that's Adam. That's not just his glyph I can't remember. In addition to that, we added profile photos, uh, which we encrypt uh, when they're private, just the way we do phone numbers or names. Um, so you've got like a, basically a, it's an ambiently easier to use and, and more fun service as a result of those changes. I wanted to talk to you about LTB coin. Because I, I've been so focused and heads down on the release, I've been I was falling behind on my Let's Talk Bitcoin. Seems like a really interesting way to bring the to get the coin out is to make it a part of the show and to have uh, the I heard these secret words, these special magic words. And as you know, I like to do kind of something a little bit fun and different when I come on your show. <laughs> so I was wondering if it was possible if I could potentially say secret word for the show today. Well, I think that that can definitely be arranged. You know me, Rob, I'm always looking to outsource as much of my work as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it would be helpful, to, uh, you know, since you do this can helpfully for me to remind people that uh, if you take this secret word I'm going to say, and you, you go to letstalkbitcoin.com and you log into your account, 
and you can scroll down and enter the secret word. And I believe then you can redeem that for LTB coin. Is that correct? That's correct. What it does is it gives you essentially a listening credit. And we value listening credits at about five times the rate that we value uh, people visiting uh, like articles on the on the site because they're actually having to come back and do this. Yeah, this is an experiment we're trying. Rob, uh, that, that's, a, that's a really good idea. Let's do that. All right, now is the time for the awesome secret word segment of Let's Talk Bitcoin. And I'm very pleased to bring Glyph into it. So here I am. The, that's not the secret word. The secret word is buttercup. The secret word is buttercup. Buttercup. So, B-U-T-T-E-R-C-U-P. One word. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I was thinking about this last night, Adam, because I was like, oh, I got to do that secret word bit. And I was like, what will the secret word be? And it, for some reason, it reminded me of this. Um, there's this episode of this sitcom from the 90s. Uh, you know, Urkel uh, from Family Matters. Okay. Okay. There's this, there's this one episode where Urkel builds an atomic bomb in the basement. There's a secret word to arm the bomb. He's accidentally down there with this unrequited love, uh, Laura. And he, he accidentally says a secret word, which is his uh, nickname for her, which is Buttercup. And it causes all this, you know, it starts to go off. And there's a lot of tension. <laughs> so this is actually a reference to Family Matters episode. That I, and I had to find it on Google. I could only find like a small reference to this. We appreciate Buttercup certainly you're, you're doing the research for this uh, wonderful magic word this time, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> so, so go enter that on the website. Well, Rob, thanks for being on the show again. Um, yeah. If people would like to learn more, get involved, I mean, where are you guys right now? You're, you're a year into being a funded startup. Are you still hiring? Are you mm-hmm. just looking for as many users as possible? We did start our funding round at the very beginning of early this year. And since we closed our angel round and we've moved the product for a lot and since then. But for people, I think the key is, is really check out the product. I mean, go to gli.ph. Uh, try out the desktop web. If you use CoinPress or blockchain, try, try connecting your wallet and sending some Bitcoin around. I, I believe we're we're really on the very cutting edge of what user experience is and how good it can be to use Bitcoin. So I just appreciate people here from the podcast who listen to the podcast, just checking it out and feel, giving it a try and giving us feedback. If you really like the work we're doing, we have like a group of people, we call them advocates who kind of, we, we give the heads up. They've been testing it. I actually should thank all of them right now. Uh, some of them are your listeners who have put tons of work into testing the iOS, Android, and desktop web over the past couple of months uh, to get it ready for today. You can, if you're really interested, uh, you're more than welcome to reach out to me using the support glyph, or um, you can send me a note at support at gli.ph, and uh, I'd be happy to, to meet with you. Uh, usually, a few of your listeners will say hello after each time the podcast airs, so that's Feel free to say hi. I'll, I'll definitely reply to your, to, your, to your note. Thanks for listening to episode 130 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show is provided by Adam, Mark, Rob, John, and JC. This episode was edited by Denise Levine. Music for today's show was provided by Jared Rubens and The New Time. Head over to letstalkbitcoin.com and click the big button at the top, Mark Community, to get involved today. Thanks for listening, and see you there.